I was wondering if any of you ever have the struggle of letting go of control, maybe just a little bit. Are there any control freaks in the room? Wow, some people are just straight up admitting it. I really do appreciate that. Some of you are wondering, I don't know, maybe it's me. Well, I had a series of questions that would actually ascertain whether or not you struggle with control. Here is one. Now, in a household, maybe you're married, maybe you're living with a bunch of buddies, there's probably a king or a queen of the remote control. Am I right? Okay. Now, who is it? You can point fingers if you want right now. Who normally is the king or the queen of the remote control? Now, does this person share power? I'm seeing some puzzled looks. How about tonight or tomorrow this person actually taking that remote control and saying, you decide? Okay, here's another test. Um, everyone, can you reach in your pockets and take out your keys and just dangle them, dangle them before me right here. Here are my keys. I drive a Prius. It's over there in that direction. Okay, now how would you feel about someone you're sitting next to driving home today? You feel okay with that? Then just hand them over the keys right now. Some of you are gladly doing it. Some of you are still gripping those keys. Some of you never took the keys out of your pocket. Aha! Okay, let me, let me tell you a little bit of a story. Um, when I was a kid, obviously, my mom, my dad, would drive me everywhere I would go. And there was at a certain age that I turned where it's kind of scary to let my mom drive. I mean, she drove me everywhere, but nowadays I'll be like, no thanks, you know, I'll drive. That's not going to happen. She's older. It's just, it's just harder to give her control. How many of you guys have kids who are now 16? Okay, you know where I'm going with this. Was that easy just to give them control of your car? No. You had to call the insurance company first. You had to give like a really, it's hard. Okay, here's another one. Here's another test. Father-in-laws, mother-in-laws who are really, really good in the kitchen. Uh, your son, your daughter married. Was it difficult to go to a new kitchen and not be queen or king of the kitchen? Yes or no? My mom is, has the only problem with that. It, it was hard. It's still hard. Because that's the domain of her control, and now she is paying homage to a new queen of the kitchen. You're like, can it be king of the kitchen? Yes, I cook a lot too, but that's a different conversation. Today we're going to talk, um, we're going to share the story of a man with whom it was kind of hard to let go of control. It was pretty challenging for him. It was very challenging. Uh, today we're going to tell the story of King Herod. And I'm really going to tell you this story. I'm going to tell you his history. I'm going to tell you his background. He's actually quite an interesting guy. You might be able to relate to him. King Herod was a politician. And not just a politician. He was a really good one. He grew up in a political family. Herod's father served as a leader in Judea. And the emperor liked him so much that the emperor made him a Roman citizen 
and exempted him from taxes for his entire life. That's a pretty sweet deal. Now, Herod's father had so much favor with the emperor that when his father proposed that his son be the governor of Galilee, the emperor said yes. This was Emperor Cassius. And so at the young age of 25, now how many of you are like 25 or younger? Raise your hand. On why are you raising your hand? <laughs> 25 years old, he entered politics, and he became the governor of Galilee. Everyone would admit that Herod was a good administrator. He kept peace. He kept order in the region. But five years after he took office, this is 42 BC, Emperor Cassius, who appointed him as the governor of Galilee, Emperor Cassius was overthrown by Mark Antony. And so it left Herod scrambling. So Herod made this very important trip to Rome. And he had audience with Caesar and with the Roman Senate. And he gave a pitch, and he convinced them that he could be trusted. And it worked. I don't know what he said, but he hit a home run. And not only did the Roman Senate trust him, but they said, you know something, we're not just going to reappoint you as the governor of Galilee. We're going to make you king of the entire region. We're going to make you king of Judea. And so you just imagine King Herod feeling really proud of himself. Like in the clutch, he totally came through. But the thing with King Herod is that he could never fully relax. I don't know if you, if you know about his ethnicity, but he was only half Jewish. His father was not Jewish. His father was an Edomite. And so the Romans didn't really fully trust him because you're kind of Jewish. You're kind of half Jewish. But then the Jews didn't really trust him and really receive him as their king because he was a half-breed. And the other half was an Edomite, and they hated the Edomites. This was not a great kind of um, setup for Herod. And so it always kind of left him struggling to win the love and the respect of his people. King Herod was married uh, maybe 10, maybe 11 times. He had about 43 kids. His first wife was named Marion, and reportedly, this was the only wife that he loved, like he really loved. Every Christmas, we tell the story of Herod, and we, we, we paint broad strokes, and you've heard the stories before, and Herod is painted, of course, because we're, we're following through the Gospel of Matthew, but he's painted as a villain. And it stands to reason that if you have like a toddler or a two-year-old slaughtered, yes, you're a villain. You're a villain, and you will be a villain. But I think there's a kind of danger that happens when we demonize someone like King Herod. And I say this because the truth of the matter is that there is a little King Herod inside each one of us. And so if we read the story and just dismiss him, we're not really paying attention to the warning that the same blood that flowed in his veins is also in ours. And the same decision that he made is a decision that we wrestle with too. And so today we want to relate to a struggle and pay attention 
to the warning of King Herod. So let's walk through the story. <clears throat> okay, this is Matthew 2, and uh, Mimia did a great job reading through the story, and I'm assuming that most of you know where the story goes, so I'm just going to, for the most part, summarize it. Uh, the scripture says that wise, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem. Uh, we call them magi, we call them wise men, we call them three kings. There's nothing really about three kings, but magi, I think, would, would be the, the going words. And they're asking about a king that's been born. Now, these men were Persians, probably. These men were probably nobility, probably. And this one, not so much probably. They were astrologers. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but let me just point out really quickly. That's kind of weird. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, Matthew is telling the story. It's primarily to a Jewish audience, and, and astrology is forbidden among the Jews. And he's, oh, yeah, yeah, these are, you know, magi, and uh, they basically are using their astrology. And so God actually spoke to them through their astrology. And it's kind of weird because astrology is forbidden. What makes you think, like, I guess this actually happened. Otherwise, Matthew wouldn't put it in the story. Because it opens the can of worms. But, but God communicates to them in their quote-unquote own language. And as they're reading the, the stars, they, they realize a profound disturbance in their reading of the stars. And in the language of their astrology, it means that there is a newborn king in Israel of unusual prominence. And so they make this journey to, to, to Israel, and it's going to be weeks, weeks and weeks, maybe months. Now, once you get into Israel, where do you think they're going to go? Well, you go to the capital. Where's the capital? Jerusalem. Now, they're thinking there is a king of unusual prominence, so it's going to come with the establishment. It's probably going to be one of King Herod's heirs. So they arrive in the scene, and they're asking questions. And they're being referred to other people, and they're asking questions. And finally, news reaches King Herod. And Herod is freaked out. Why is he freaked out? Because none of his wives are pregnant. Actually, the baby's supposed to be born. None of his wives are just given birth. In fact, he might even say that all my kids are all grown up. This child that they're looking for didn't come from me. Now, he is disturbed. He's really, he's really anxious. He's disturbed. And it says that all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. And it makes sense because they're the establishment. They're all associated with King Herod. He's disturbed. They're all disturbed. Something is coming to disturb the peace. Something's coming to disturb the order that they know. Now, Herod wants more information. So he calls together the experts in the land, and they would be the experts of the law. They would be the priests. They would be the scribes. They know the scripture. And he comes together. They have this meeting, and he's consulting with them. Basically, his question is, where is this newborn king supposed to be born, right? And they know the Old Testament, they know the prophets, and so they quote Micah, and they say it's all pointing towards Bethlehem. And he knows it's not from his own line, so he's talking about the Christ. He knows that there's been rumors because of the prophets that there is a leader of unusual prominence coming into the land of Israel, and he's called Christ, and he wants to know where the Christ is coming from, and they point to Bethlehem. Now, at this point, Herod has a defining moment. 
And the decision that he makes now is going to set the course of his life. Is going to set the course of his life for all of eternity. And I would argue that every single person in this room has to make the same decision. And whatever Herod is wrestling with now, every person in the room needs to wrestle with this decision. And Herod's question and the decision was, what am I supposed to do with Jesus? And it's the same question that everyone on the planet has to answer, has to wrestle with. What am I supposed to do with Jesus? What do I do with Jesus? We used to have a former pastor who would say that everyone in the world has three big decisions to make, and they all start with the letter M. I thought it'd be fun for you to kind of guess what it might be. Can you turn to someone next to you and just throw out your guess on what these big decisions of life might be? They all start with the letter M. Why don't you just go ahead and do that? I'm giving you like 10 more seconds, so. Okay. Now, when he said this, I was really interested because I want to know what those big decisions are. I want to get ahead of the game. What do you guys think the big decisions of life are that all begin with M? Go ahead, throw them out. Money. How many of you guys said money? It's interesting, money wasn't top three, according to this pastor. So what does that say about you? I'm just kidding. No, money, I would say money is top four. What else? Marriage. Okay, actually, the pastor said it was mate. Marriage. It all works. It's all with M, right? Matrimony. Okay. Now, it's not necessarily, I mean, it's like, am I going to get married? But I guess the question after that is like, who am I going to marry? That was a really big thing. My 20s were all about, who am I going to marry? Who am I going to marry? Big decision. What do you think the, uh, the, the next time is? Anyone say mission? Mission. Ah, uh, all the missional people have raised their hand. God bless you. <laughs> yes. Now, mission, you're like, oh, you, you mean like evangelism. No, no, not necessarily. It's like, it can be career. But it's more like, what's your purpose in life? What's your driving purpose? In life? It's, it's more like, you were put on this planet. What's the unique good that you're going to bring to the planet? Okay? That you, that's one good way to say mission. Now, here, here is the first M. It's interesting. We said money, and we said mission, and we said mate. But the first M would decisively be the most important M. Actually, you could say the first M is going to set the course for everything else. It's going to set the course for mate. It's going to set the course for mission. It's going to set the course for money. It's going to set the course for munchies and everything else, all the molecules of life. It's master. Who is your master? Or let me put it this way. Who has ultimate authority in your life, shaping your values, shaping your priorities? Who is the master that you worship? Now, I always remember what my former pastor said. Like, once you decide the big M of who is master, then you have direction, you have guidance for every other decision of life. Now, I think this is true with King Herod. I think this is totally true. King Herod reasoned 
that there cannot be two masters. There cannot be two kings. There cannot be two bosses. Two people cannot have the same remote control or drive the car. There can be only one person driving the car. And King Herod was actually clear in his vision. It can either be King Jesus. Right now he's a, he's a, he's a little baby, but you know what he's going to grow up to be. Or it can be me, but let's just be clear. It can't be both. And I actually think he's right. It can't be both. Some people go, why didn't he just ignore the baby? You can't ignore a baby king. It's like a weed. You got to get it when it's small. You can't, it's going to grow up. It's going to take over the whole garden. And he was right. There can only be one king. And so King Herod had a decision to make. Now, what, what, was, what was the idol that, that, that King Herod struggled with? Why was it so hard for him to let go? I, 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 I could give like multiple reasons. Maybe one fundamentally is that he had his kingdom the way that he wanted it. Ever since age 25, he was working so hard to get it the way that he wanted it. And now there was a baby coming into the world that was going to mess up everything. And you got to get it when it's small. That's what kings do. He didn't want to lose control. He wanted things the way that he wanted them, which is very similar to us. We like things the way that we... Some of us, you get, you know how hard I've worked to get where I am in life? And, and then you want me to give allegiance to this king who's going to start telling me what to do? He, he was like, I'm, I'm, he would have none of it. Now, I think there's other reasons, too. I, I think he, you know, he was, look, he was, he was seen as a half-breed by his own people. He was struggling to be loved. And he kind of knew that this baby grew up, and there's all these rumors about the Messiah. They're going to love this baby way more than him. Maybe there would be a political disturbance. Maybe Rome would come and wipe out everyone. And he wanted to keep the order. That's what kings do. So he made the call, and he made the decision. But fundamentally with King Herod, and this is why we're making much of King Herod, and this is why the story makes much of King Herod, it was an issue of lordship and surrender. Ah. It's also an issue for us. It's also something that we struggle with. Last Sunday, how many of you guys were here last Sunday? I saw, I saw Ellen here. It was Meg, Megan's here too? Megan's, Megan's, oh, Megan, Ellen, there you go. Hey! It was so exciting to see both of you get baptized. And uh, I was talking with On, and uh, On baptized both of them. If you were there, it was just really incredible. We were super happy. We were so encouraged as a church. But what happened is that On had scripted everything he was going to say on this little note card thing. And Ichan gave him the sage advice. Put it in a plastic bag because you're going to be up there. He's like, no, 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 I don't need no plastic bag. So anyway, he was up there, and he's got this dry piece of paper, everything he wanted to say, right? But then he started having to baptize, and you need both hands to baptize. So the paper got wet. And then with the second baptism, the paper was saturated, and it started to float away. 
And he's like, my lines, my lines, my script. And he had one of those moments where he's like scrambling, okay? Because he wrote it down. He's like, okay, what did I say? And it came down to this, okay? And if this ever happens to you, just remember this, okay? It came down to this. I'm going to baptize them. What do they need to confess? Did you receive Jesus as Savior? Yes. Okay, good, okay. Did you receive Jesus as Lord? Yes. Okay, I think you're ready to be baptized. It comes down to this. It's actually not that complicated. It's receiving Jesus as Savior, and it's receiving Jesus as Lord. But if you unpack this, what does it mean to receive Jesus as Lord? There is a lot that is at stake. It means that you surrender every part of your life to his will. Every part. Every part. Now, okay. If you receive, when you receive Jesus as big M master, it gives guidance and direction to all the M's of life, all the way down to the molecules of life. It is about money. Tithing becomes a lordship issue. It's about free time. Who do I hang out with in my free time? It, it's about like, who do I talk to in coffee hour? It's, it's about like, how do I spend my Sunday morning? It's like, on Sunday mornings, do I take my kids to church or do I take them to a ball game? These are lordship issues. It's, it's giving God control of your sex life. And what you look at on TV, it's giving God control of how you treat your parents. I mean, I could go on and on. It's, it's everything. Now, here's the thing. Most of us would be like, I've given Jesus control of my life like all 80% of my life. I think most of us would say that. So my question to you today is, what's the 20% that you're still holding on to? Everyone has the 20%. And it's really hard for them to let go of the 20%. What's the 20% for you? You know, I, I think um, uh, automatically when we talk about letting, giving God full control of your life, we're probably starting to talk about like external stuff. And I think that's a really good conversation. And maybe that's God's word for you. You're like, okay, I'm struggling with this part of my sex life. Or I'm struggling with, 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 with this thing, like how I treat my boss. Okay. And if that's the thing, then run away with that, and, and God's going to talk to you more about that. But I'm convinced that the 20% is actually, okay, let me, I'll put it this way. Uh, I remember when I, was, uh, I first became a Christian, I had a mentor, and he was challenging me to surrender to Jesus every part of my life. And I was a baby Christian, and of course, I'm thinking, okay, that's the big master, but then there's mate, and then there's mission. And so the thing that I was struggling with, the thing that I didn't really, I didn't really like that idea. And I think the first thing that I thought is, if I really give God control of my life, he's going to make me wind up marrying someone that I don't want to marry. That was, that was really fundamentally one of the, my first struggles. 
And I've talked to other people, like, you know, about challenging them and inviting them to give God control of their lives. And I've, I've heard different responses. For some, it's not like letting go of mate, but it was more like, I'm really concerned, and they would look at me and say this, I'm really concerned that if I give God control of my life, they would make me like a missionary to, like, Tibet. And then they would look at me and go, or worse yet, a pastor, you know, <laughs> yeah. They, God would want me to be poor, you know. I would listen to charismatics. And they always seem to have this story, like it was a very socially awkward thing, and God's like, oh, go talk to that person about Jesus. No, I don't want to talk, you know, go talk. And, then, and they would do it. But it would always come out to be like a good story. But I, would ne- I always felt like if I give my life to Jesus, he's going to find that thing I'd least want to do and say, yeah, 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 that. do that. And I didn't want to give him the, my keys to my car or my life. It's hard to surrender that kind of control. But, um, but he's a king. And my mentor was challenging me, so I made the decision finally. I said, okay, okay, okay. I commit by his grace to go wherever he calls me to go, to do whatever he calls me to do, to marry whoever he calls me to marry. He's my king. And so I always thought that when it was time to marry, it's just simple. God says, boom, marry that person, and you propose. So I met Raina, and then we dated for about three and a half years. And three and a half years was a, was a bit long, okay? And um, we were struggling with some issues, and it didn't seem like those issues were going to go away anytime soon. So, but it was decision time. It was time to make a decision. So I remember one time, and I remember that commitment I made to God to surrender all of my life to him. And so there was one time I had a whole evening. I'm like, okay, I'm going to come out of this evening. I'm going to make a decision. And so I said, Lord God, and I said, I remember saying, it was, these were the exact words. If you want me to marry Raina, I will marry Raina. And if you want me to break up with her, I will break up with her. Just tell me what to do. And I remember God spoke to me at that moment. It was just two words. But I'm telling you, I wasn't expecting those two words, and those two words were bone-chilling to me. At that moment, I said, God, I will do whatever you call me to do. You want me to marry her or marry her? You want me to break up with her or break up with her? These are deep, deep-seated issues. I don't know if they're going to go away. I'll do what you want me to do. And then I was silent, and in my heart, I heard two words, and he said, you decide. And it freaked me out. <laughs> what? You decide? I was, I was having like a mini meltdown, like, all my life, surrender to the Lord. You're supposed to tell me who to marry. At that moment, I said, and you say you decide, and you see all the angles, and I just see my own, like, issues. You decide, really? Now, it never made sense to me. I'm telling you, it did not make sense to me for the longest time. And then I started to read God's word, and then I started to read the book of Matthew, and then I started to read the Sermon on the Mount, and actually, I think I understand now what he was doing. You see, all this time, from the moment that I surrendered myself to Jesus, Jesus wasn't after just my external decisions. He was after my heart. 
He wasn't just after, go here, go there, do this, do that. He was after my worship. And I feel like what he was saying to me in this decision is, during the last 15 years, he's been cultivating my heart to, one, to, to, to love one thing, and that's him. And I felt like he was saying, I know I have your heart, so I can trust you. You decide. And it blew me away. And I, I remember saying, well, Lord, I love Raina, and if you give me the decision, I choose to marry her. I said, Lord, I love you with all of my heart, and I choose to marry Raina. And he didn't really say anything after that. <laughs> you know, can it be that this Jesus has come into the world not necessarily to tell you what to do and go here and marry this person and do this career? Well, yes, actually, he is the king. And he does have that authority, but, but I think the thing that he wants most of all is your heart. He wants your desires. He wants your worship. He wants a, a person who says, you know, yes, I can go there. Yes, I can do this. But I just want you to be glorified. I wanna, I, I'm cherishing you with everything that I have. And all those decisions are just, how can I love you more? How can I bring you glory? Can it be that during this Advent season, this baby has come into the world, and the number one he thing he wants is not, is not just people, I will go where you call me to go. But what he really wants is people who say, I love you. I just want you more and more, and all my decisions are serving that ultimate purpose of loving you more. So this means something when we're about to take communion. It's an invitation to declare your love for Jesus. This is an invitation for the song that we're about to sing during worship. This is an invitation for tomorrow morning. I know it's Advent season. I know there's gifts to buy. I know there's a lot of things to do. But tomorrow morning, will you just take time to pray, read God's word, and to let God know that you love Jesus? Jesus did not come into the world just to be Lord of your decisions, but he has come for your worship. Now, uh, I want to finish with the rest of the story. Herod tells the Magi where to find the baby. Uh, he directs them to Bethlehem. He's already plotted what he's going to do. You know? so, and so he basically says, you go to Bethlehem, you find the baby, you come back and tell me where the baby is so that I can go and worship him too. This part, I, I, I know in the beginning of the message, I said, let's try to understand Herod. Um, and I understand why he makes this decision, but I totally question his wisdom. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, look at what happens, okay? He tells the Magi, go to Bethlehem. They go to Bethlehem. God warns them in a dream after they find the baby Jesus and worship him, by the way. They, the text says they worshiped him. They fell down and they worshiped him. God gives them a dream, says, don't go back to Herod, and so they go a different way. Herod realizes that he's outsmarted. You know what he does? He sends soldiers, violent soldiers, to kill every child two years and under. But before he does that, God gives Joseph a dream and says, get out of there. They get out of there, they go to Egypt. What's going on here? Why this story? Well, 
it's very clear God wants everyone to know he is always one step ahead of the Herods in life. He's always one step ahead. Actually, he's a thousand steps. Actually, he planned it. But he's one step ahead, right? He's like, go there. And God's like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't go there. Go a different way. He's sending violent soldiers. And then God's like, no, no, no. You, know, you guys get out of there. He's always one step ahead. So it's kind of like, Herod, do you actually think that you can win? Do you know who you're up against? I mean, these are ancient prophets from old. They come from, pro- who, who is he fighting? He's fighting God. Now, to that little Herod inside each of us, that, and, and it's so hard for us to give God control, can we just talk to that little Herod a little bit and say, who are you fighting? And then here's the other, do you actually think you can win? Herod, do you know what you're up against? There's no win in this. He's the king. He's God. Okay, but he does what he does, right? And, um, and God is one step ahead of him. This baby will grow up to become a man. And one of the most profound teachings that Jesus as the God-man gave is what it means to surrender to him as Lord. Now, I want to give this in reflection to this entire story. Jesus said that if you're going to follow me, Jesus said, if I'm going to be Lord in your life, Jesus said, you must deny yourself. And then he said this, he said, whoever would save his life will lose it. Here is Herod And he's doing everything he can to save his life the way that he wants to live. He wants to be boss. He wants to king. And I'll tell you what happened to him. I told you that his favorite wife, Marianne, the only wife he loved, well, she was part of the Hasmodean family, and they were rivals with King Herod. And so at one point in time, he felt like he couldn't trust her anymore, and so he had her executed. He also felt like he couldn't trust her mom, and so he had his mother-in-law executed too. Three of his children were ambitious. Three of his children were capable. He got jealous. He executed them all too. Now get this one. He knew that his death was approaching, and he also knew because of the person that he was and the life that he left, he led, he knew that no one was going to cry on the day that he died. So... In the days that led up to his death, he had dozens of influential citizens around the land put in prison. And he gave clear orders that on the day that I die, I want all of those dozens of influential and beloved, I want them all executed. Because people won't be crying for me, but I want them to be crying on the day that I die. That was King Herod the Great. Now, Matthew is taking some time so you would hear this story. Why? Well, he wants you to do a little bit of comparing and contrasting. It's almost like Matthew is saying, there's two kings. Which one are you going to worship? And there's a little King Herod in your heart, by the way. And there's only one throne. Who are you going to worship? We're supposed to do some comparing. And so I'm going to close with this final comparison. One king was destined to be king for a limited amount of time, and the other king was destined to be king for eternity. King Herod sent violent soldiers to do his dirty work. Jesus came himself 
as a vulnerable baby. King Herod would clench his fist and hold on to power, and King Jesus would open his hand and let go of heaven and come down. King Herod was full of himself, but King Jesus emptied himself. King Herod would kill other people to protect his power. King Jesus allowed himself to be killed on the cross to protect his people. There are two kings, and in your heart there is only one throne. Which king will you surrender to? Which king will you worship? Let's pray.